0: Welcome to the Shoulder Physio Podcast, a podcast dedicated to exploring meaningful topics in musculoskeletal healthcare. I'm your host, Garrett Powell. Before we begin, the primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views expressed in this podcast by myself and any guests are information only, do not constitute professional advice and are general in nature. If you act on the basis of any podcast episode, you should obtain specific advice from a qualified health professional before proceeding. Today's guest is Jack Hickey. Jack is a leading hamstring researcher out of Melbourne, Australia. In this conversation, we discuss an interesting paper authored by Jack, published in the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy in 2020, which investigated pain-free versus pain threshold rehabilitation Following acute hamstring strain injury. The results of Jack's research may be different to what you might expect. Stay tuned for the big reveal coming up in this episode. The conversation was originally recorded in July 2020 for my YouTube show on the shoulders of giants. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the conversation, and for your information, for the first time in two years, I am running my one day shoulder workshop in Sydney and Melbourne, in May and June of 2022. Tickets are limited to 30 participants at each workshop. The course offers a complete distillation of the evidence base for shoulder pain management, equipping you with up-to-date knowledge, techniques, and clinical reasoning skills that are clinically actionable. If this is something you are interested in, check the show notes for more information. Without any further delay, I bring to you my conversation with Jack Hickey.
1: All right. Uh, here we are with uh, Mr. Jack Hickey, the hamstring extraordinaire uh, from down in Victoria, Melbourne, which is going through a tough time at the moment, which we uh, won't mention, mate. Thanks very much for joining me.
2: Pleasure. i don't know about extraordinaire, mate. have been called the first things before, so I'll, I'll take that. Thanks for having me on, mate. So, Nice to be able to, to have a chat and we don't have a lot else to do down here at the moment. We're sort of a bit locked down. So yeah, happy to, happy to jump online for a chat.
1: Yeah, awesome. So, so the reason why I reached out to you for a, for a conversation is uh, through a recent randomized control trial, which, uh, which was really an excellent paper that you've released, I think in the JOSPT this year. Yeah. Right? Yep. All right. So before we get into that paper, which was concerning the hamstring, do you mind just giving uh, me and the audience a bit of an introduction about you and what you like to do, mate, outside of uh, your academic work as well as your academic interests as well?
2: Yeah, sure. So I suppose um, my kind of academic journey, I suppose, to this point was, um, I mean, I finished my undergrad um, was it pretty much 10 years ago now. That was um, in what was then called human movement. So it probably shows you how, how long ago it was. Um, you know commonly known as exercise science now so that was at uh, RMIT University down here in Melbourne and that's where I first got exposed to a couple of people who were pretty influential in the, the path that I eventually took so um, Anthony Shield and uh, David Opa and I were both well, Tony was a, was a lecturer uh, one of my first lecturers there at RMIT and uh, Dave was a, actually I think a, a final year undergrad student when I was a first year student there basically met him while he was doing his honours um, under Tony and Um, got involved in in the the initial sort of research the guys were doing um, in looking at um, at hamstring injuries and learning some lab skills and that sort of stuff and as as most undergrad students tend to do have a bit of an interest in in those sorts of things so that kind of sparked an initial interest in in research but it wasn't sort of the pathway that I initially wanted to take and you know I went um, as a you know relatively naive 20, 21 year old finished my undergrad and really wanted to, to get out in the workforce and work and um, for me, that was pursuing a, a master's in clinical exercise physiology, um, having a real passion for, for exercise as a, a mode of, you know, not only rehabilitation but also for, for treatment and, um, you know, for chronic disease and that sort of thing. So I did that at, at Deakin University down here in Melbourne and then went out and worked in clinical practice for, for a few years, um, primarily in, in musculoskeletal uh, rehabilitation and private practice. And that combined with keeping an involvement with both Dave and Tony over that, Period of time sort of then sparked a few clinical questions and some interest in, in hamstring injury rehab. Um, you know, fortunately enough, uh, Dave, who did his PhD up in up in Queensland under Tony after leaving Melbourne, he, he came back to Melbourne where he's originally from, and he got in touch and sort of wanted to see if I was still perhaps keen on on pursuing research. And um, it wasn't something I, I really thought I would do, but um, you know, Dave created an environment that was you know really enjoyable to be in and. We had a a building team down at ACU in in Melbourne. He had uh, Ryan Timmons um, as his first PhD student Um, and then myself and another guy, Narav Maniar, came on sort of at the same time to start our PhDs, Uh, Rav more so in in biomechanics and and myself more in the the clinical sphere, um, looking at rehab. So yeah, that was back in 2015, started the PhD and um, that sort of evolved over the next few years and and finished that in 2018. So. That's sort of the journey I took to, to finish the PhD, which was in hamstring injury rehab. Um, and then over the past uh, couple of years, I've uh, been fortunate enough to stay on at ACU uh, in a full-time academic role, so a combination of, of lecturing and, uh, and research, um, and a little bit of clinical work through our internal clinic as well, but primarily teaching and research, teaching our, our master's programs in clinical EP, musculoskeletal and sports Injury rehab. So yeah, that's that's the boring stuff, mate. In terms of uh, the, the sort of academic pathway and and where we've got to, and I suppose what started all that was just a general interest in sport and exercise, and you know, keeping fit and healthy. And um, although I'm certainly not that fit and healthy at the moment, particularly with uh, the current lockdown situation, we can't get out as much as we'd like. But yeah, if that that's sort of what what's their my interest. And that's what I enjoy doing outside of uh, outside of work is, is keeping active, keeping fit and healthy, and uh, doing fun stuff like that. Yeah.
1: Are you a, are
2: you an AFL man down there? Oh, mate, it's hard not to be here in Melbourne. Yeah. I am an AFL man. I'm a somewhat long suffering Essendon supporter that had an interesting time over the past particularly ten years. So when I was a kid, the, it was a little bit different. But uh, yeah, no, I do do love my AFL just just generally as as a sport uh, being here in Melbourne. But big fan of all sports. Um, but yeah, AFL. It's hard to. Uh, to sort of focus on too much else down here in, in the bubble.
1: Yeah, I'm a Bombers fan as well. So it's uh, got finally good to commiserate together, although this year seems seems promising. Um, yeah, anyway, something will promising. probably happen. We've, There'll been, probably we've something been there Michael.
2: before. <laughs> yeah, anyway. yeah, we've, been, we've been there before. It looks promising. It doesn't go anywhere. So I'm, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Have you had a hamstring injury yourself, Jack?
2: I haven't, interestingly enough. It's a question that I do get asked a little bit. Um, I probably probably the reason is I've never run fast enough to do one. So play a lot of footy uh, growing up and into into my early twenties, but uh, yeah, probably never covered the ground at any great speed, and so hence my hamstrings were never in any great danger of uh, <laughs> of injury. Yeah.
1: So so a classic injury in AFL and any sporting or footballing code is, is a hamstring injury, and it's. Can ruin careers, you know, people, Cyril Rioli is a classic example. Didn't ruin his career, had a fantastic career, but c- certainly missed a, a chunk of games due to recurrent hamstring strains and we could name many, many others as well. So it's, it's important that us as clinicians and, and health practitioners that we know how to actually manage these conditions because they have a tremendous effect on games missed and, and quality of life and all these sorts of things as well so kind of a nice segue in into the paper potentially uh that you've published do you mind just sort of setting the scene roughly in terms of the methodology of the paper and your aims and your hypotheses and, and then quickly some results and we'll sort of explore some interesting parts of it
2: yeah sure so i suppose where, where it all started was coming back to to do a phd um and, and knowing that i wanted to do wanted to do it in hamstring injury Generally, but then also with a with a rehabilitation focus coming from a, a clinical background, I probably had some uh, some questions of my own that I, I felt were, were relatively interesting, at least to me. Um, they probably needed to be be refined a little bit um, under guidance of, of people like Dave and um, and my other PhD supervisors. And um, through that process, we sort of looked at well, how do clinicians make decisions during rehabilitation? And one of the things that I always I guess, struggled with to an extent when when working in in private practice is you'd see a patient with whatever kind of injury or condition they might have and knowing what to do that day when they walk in. So how they present today, is that going to tell me whether I can do exercise A, B or C? So being an exercise physiologist, that's what I I use as my intervention is, is exercise. So the way that I'm going to determine what exercises I do might be through a clinical assessment or it might be through an exercise-based assessment, seeing you know, what they can handle at a submax level and then progressing them on from there. And so I suppose it's that decision-making process that really interested me because when reading a lot of the literature around hamstring strain injury rehab, when making decisions about all right, when should I introduce certain exercises or certain stimulus in rehab, there's sort of some arbitrary cut points and criteria that are, that are thrown out there and they give clinicians a good guide as to, to what we should do. So... You might see things like, you know, once someone is pain-free um, in a range of motion test, that's when we can start doing long-length exercises like an RDL or something like that. Or maybe once they're pain-free with an isometric contraction, we're going to introduce eccentric stimulus. And yeah, they're fairly logical progression milestones. But I suppose what I saw is a bit of a disconnect as someone who's worked in with patients with all sorts of conditions and prescribing exercises. What happens in a clinical assessment of range of emotional strength doesn't necessarily carry over to what happens with exercise prescription. And then when looking at specifically progressing exercises, the main thing that people do is they say, "Well, can you do exercise A without pain?" Once you can do that, all right, we're going to progress you to exercise B. And that is the probably the easiest progression point to use. Is you know, once someone can do something pain free, we're going to allow them firstly to continue doing that and then to progress them on. Whereas if they have pain, we're probably going to pull the reins on them slightly, which which makes makes sense at a um, relatively simplistic level. But I suppose what we looked at with that is is the hard and fast line of complete pain avoidance necessary. And in the early stages of my PhD, we did a systematic review and we looked at criteria for progressing rehabilitation as well as a decision making around return to play clearance. But specifically with that rehab progression and continuing with exercise. It was primarily pain and the need to be pain-free that kept coming up in the literature. And that's not to say that's what every practitioner does uh, because we know that practitioners, you know, they improvise and they'll do things that they find works for them and certainly practitioners will use or allow pain during exercise for certain conditions. But particularly with acute muscle injuries, especially in the initial week uh, following an injury, people will tend to avoid pain. Know, while performing rehabilitation because they're a fear of reinjury or exacerbating symptoms or anything like that. But we sort of thought, well, is there a certain level that we might be able to push it to? You know, Do we need to be absolutely pain-free? And what is absolutely pain-free? What does that actually look like? Versus if we allowed a, a low level, what would be considered a low level of pain during exercises. First, is that safe? And also secondly, does it lead to any improvement in clinical outcomes, whether that be in strength or Uh, muscle structure or function or maybe even time to return to play? So that was our our overarching research question that we wanted to answer. And so then when we put together the the study, we basically thought, well, what we need to do is have two groups of um, participants who are randomized to either a pain-free or what we termed a pain threshold approach. Uh, And they follow the exact same rehab program. They do the same exercises, the same exposure in terms of the amount of times they come in or that sort of thing. So no differences between the groups apart from the fact that when performing exercise, those in the pain free would only be allowed to continue with exercise or progress exercise if they reported absolutely no pain versus those in what we call the pain threshold group were allowed to continue or progress exercises up to a limit of 4 out of 10 pain. So where we got that 4 out of 10, it's a relatively arbitrary number and anyone who works with pain scales and you know knows the the challenges and the subjectivity in them. But for me, the important thing is, is using a pain scale, and we use a 0 to 10 numeric rating scale, whereby we explain that 0 means absolutely no pain at the site of injury, and 10 is the worst pain that you can imagine at the site of injury. And so we said to them, if you're experiencing a 4 or below, we're okay to continue in the pain threshold group, whereas anything on the scale in the pain-free group, we sort of pulled the reins in and backed them off in terms of what they, were, what they were doing. So that's the crux of the research question, how we set the, the study up, and then Basically, to yeah, recruit participants. We had, I've just put an, an open invite out there to people who'd suspected of a uh, hamstring strain within the last seven days and they needed to come in and have a clinical assessment to confirm presence of acute injury. And then from there, if they were interested in doing some rehab with us, um, they were randomized to, to one of the groups.
1: Cool. So if I can, if I can just briefly summarize so essentially, you you sort of noticed you had a look at the literature and you also had some experience yourself and there was this hierarchical arbitrary hierarchical progression of exercise that you must in order to go to the next phase you have to have completed the first phase without pain and therefore that qualifies you to to jump a level and do a little bit more movement or load or what have you Is is that correct
2: yeah and i think that's the other part of the I mean, the main crux of the RCT is comparing pain-free to pain threshold. What we've probably found are the more interesting findings from from our work, more so observationally throughout doing it, was in the way that we put together our our rehab protocol. We didn't want to have a a structure whereby you have phases of rehab, whereby you've got phase one and you've got a list of exercises that you're allowed to do. And then you have some progression criteria to then move to phase two, and then a new list of exercises that are generally progressions from the ones earlier. Mm. From working in uh, clinical practice, we know that different people will progress with different things at different rates. So, to say that me and you both have a, the exact same grade two hamstring strain injury and with the same time from injury and all that sort of thing, I might be able to tolerate a, a single leg RDL, no problems, but I might you know, only be able to do a double leg hamstring bridge. Whereas you might be able to do a single leg hamstring bridge, even with you know 10 kilo dumbbell across your pelvis, but you might be really struggling with your hip hinge movement. So you're doing you know just a bilateral movement there. So because we're going to move at different rates, we decided to take more of an individualized approach to how we progress each exercise that we prescribe. So every participant was exposed to the same three exercises in their first rehab session when they came in. And they were relatively sub-maximal exercises, all bilateral, so they can kind of I guess protect their injured limb as much as they felt they needed to with their uninjured limb. So that was just a basic hamstring bridge, um, a 45 degree back extension using a Roman chair, uh, bilateral, um, and then an eccentric sliding leg curl, which was performed bilaterally as well. So they can unload, or unload, sorry, their injured leg as much as they liked, and then once they could perform the exercise through full range of motion for a predetermined rep range within whichever uh, group they were allocated to, which in their pain limits, they were then allowed to progress to, say, a unilateral variation. And so you might have some guys who in their first session are already up to doing a single leg Roman chair back extension, but they can't even do five reps of a double leg bridge. And that's fine. Rather than saying you're in phase one, you, you should be doing these exercises, and then in phase two, you're going to do all of these exercises because people won't necessarily fit that, that mould. And I guess that's something that I'm reasonably big on pushing is that sort of individualised or sort of exercise-specific approach to progression rather than um, the sort of phase-based progressions that we often see recommended. And it's not to say that those approaches are bad it's to and because they're a general guideline. And I think clinicians are smart enough to know that they're a general guideline and people can then adapt within those. So we know that practitioners do that, but I suppose there's never been... I guess, a, a clear message out there to say, well, it's actually okay to progress at different rates with exercises and more to the point, is it okay to allow pain when we, when we do those things from an acute muscle injury point of view at least anyway?
1: Yeah, great. So that, that, that paints a, a beautiful picture. So, then, so that was the setup and then and then. So how many people did you get? And so then how long did they do it for? And then what, what did you follow up with? And what were the results? Tell me, what's the grand reveal?
2: Yeah, sure. So it was a good couple of years of work. So it's quite a while ago now. I mean, the study was published, at least published in print earlier this year. Um, it was accepted for publication, I think, sort of probably around this time time last year. But the actual study itself, it feels like a lifetime ago now, to be honest, mate. It was, uh, I think, it would have started, was it 2016 into 2017? I'm probably stretching my memory a bit, but I'm pretty sure we were almost done with data collection by the end of 2017. Um, which would be right because I finished my PhD in mid-2018. So, yeah, we were wrapped up data collection for this study and would have been the end of AFL season down here in Melbourne, so September 2017, which is nearly three years ago now. Um, so we had um, throughout sort of a, a two-year period, we were able to recruit um, approximately sort of 50, 50 guys came in and presented at least, but then in the actual meeting inclusion criteria and, and um, enrolling in the study, we had 43 so we had 22 who were randomly allocated to the uh, pain-free and 21 who were randomly allocated to the pain threshold uh, group. And so they came in twice a week and each time they'd come in, they did a, underwent a clinical assessment. Um, so that was conducted by an investigator who was blinded to their group allocation. So basically one of the other guys in the research team would assess their range of motion, their strength, pain with palpation, to sort of um, determine how they're progressing with their rehab from a clinical standpoint. And then I would pick up their rehab and I supervised all the rehab sessions. And so the rehab sessions weren't informed by the results of the clinical assessment. They were purely based on how they performed each exercise on an individual basis, as we sort of alluded to before. And so they came in for that twice per week, the assessment and the rehab. So the rehab was those those exercises that I mentioned as well as a progressive running protocol which was a relatively basic return to running plan which started with your, your typical walk to jog uh, sort of shuttle progressions with like an acceleration a hold and a deceleration phase and then that built up to a jog jog run jog and then like a run sprint run by the end of end of rehab so that was their exposure with with us that we controlled and then we basically advised them about their gradual return to generally team sport training so most of the participants were um, either sub-elite or semi-professional footballers. Being down in Melbourne, most of them were, were Aussie rules players, but we had a, a good, good batch of soccer players. There was a couple of cricketers thrown in the mix to keep us interested over summer as well, but the majority of participants were were during the winter period playing Aussie rules footy. So, um, yeah, that was their sort of progression through the study until they they met predetermined return to play clearance criteria. Um, and at that point, we then compared their outcomes on those clinical assessments to sort see, was there a difference between the pain-free and the pain-threshold group in, you know, sh- recovery of strength? We also measured their muscle architecture. So I mentioned Ryan Timmins uh, to you earlier. Uh, so Ryan, uh, who did his PhD under Dave, looking at biceps femoris long head muscle architecture, he assessed their uh, fascicle length um, every session when they came in. So we had that as another outcome measure there. But then I suppose the, the primary outcome measure which is how long did it take them to get to that return to play clearance time point. And basically, there was no difference between the two groups. So they both. But
1: before we before we go into that, can I ask about sure. the? So was the hamstring strain clinically diagnosed or confirmed via imaging, or how? Was so that not based?
2: confirmed. Yeah, so not confirmed by imaging, just clinical assessment. And so based on you know, evidence-based sort of guidelines of having pain, or first and foremost, and in my opinion, most importantly, having a, a clear mechanism of hamstring strain injury that caused acute onset posterior thigh pain made them stop what they were doing so we had a few guys present that you know might have had onset acute onset pain but then they didn't stop and they sort of played out the rest of the game and then you know a few days later pulled up a bit sore so they weren't included in the study they had to have acute onset pain stop what they were doing straight away then present within seven days to us they had to have pain with palpation at the, the site of injury and they had to have uh pain with uh range of motion assessment And also strength assessment, basically clinical diagnosis, which is certainly in some respects a limitation of the study and also a strength. I think the limitation is obviously we don't know what the the imaging severity was. And I dare say that the severity would have been on the, the lower end of the spectrum because most hamstrings, general hamstring strain injuries tend to be the typical sort of grade ones. Some of them may even have been, according to imaging, potentially MRI negative. The importance for us is that they were clinically positive. And so therefore, that's what a practitioner is going to see, is I've got someone who has clinical signs and symptoms of a hammy injury. If I have someone like that, what can I do with them? So certainly in future work, we'd like to be able to have access to MRI for for all participants. We know that some of the guys in the study off their own back you know, or through their sporting club did get MRIs, but they weren't part of the study. So we certainly know um, subsequently from chatting with the guys, you know, what some of the MRI results were, but that doesn't really inform our findings at all. Mm. Uh, it wasn't across the board. So cool. the main thing as well is that between the two groups, there was no difference in, in clinical severity. So in terms of strength deficit, objectively, range of motion deficit, amount of pain um, at the time of injury and on clinical assessments. So, we can say that at least clinically there's no difference between the two groups. Whether they're both really severe or really mild almost doesn't matter whether the point is we've got a, an even cohort that we're thinking.
1: Mm, cool. So, yeah, it was uniform or homogenous across both groups.
2: Yeah, right. and, and when I say homogenous, like within groups, is going to be some guys more severe and less, but then when you get between the groups, it averages out,
1: yeah. Did you measure any sort of psychosocial factors at baseline beliefs or any of that sort of stuff? The only measure we had was
2: apart from a general clinical uh, sorry general subjective interview that, that you'd conduct as a as a practitioner, um, where we picked up just some some interesting comments and things like that, but in terms of actual outcome measures, the only one was the tampa scale of kinesiophobia, which is certainly not a um, you know muscle injury specific questionnaire or you know specific to hamstring injury by any means. but we used it and it was really just to give us an an indication of whether exposure to pain during rehab would alter someone's response on that questionnaire into whether they were fearful of movement. So we measured that at baseline and then once they'd met all their return to play clearance criteria, we then gave them the survey again or the questionnaire to fill it out. So with that, we, as you'd expect in both groups, the fear of movement was much higher at baseline than it was at, at return to play. There wasn't a statistically significant difference between the groups in terms of the amount of change Looking at it, I mean, it looks like the pain threshold has a slightly larger change, but it didn't meet statistical significance. And I think that's more just down to the fact that at the time of injury, you're going to have more fear of movement. And then as they go through rehab, regardless of whether it's pain free or pain threshold, their fear of movement reduced. And probably more importantly, the pain threshold approach didn't increase fear of movement, as some people might have aversions to. They might feel that if I allow pain during rehab, are they going to become fearful of pain because of negative experiences or something like that? But we found the opposite. It was the same, if not a slightly better response than in the pain free group.
1: Yeah. I actually think that's one of the most important findings uh, to be honest, where it can empower clinicians to actually have the courage to load someone or prescribe an exercise that is to their pain threshold, which might be four out of 10, uh, or whatever's comfortable or Mm. tolerable to that person. And I think that's, something that is actually instilled into us to me anyway at university where I was it had to be pain-free and mm. that remained yeah, yeah. with me for the first five years of my my professional career to be honest until until I started to actually investigate it a little bit further and, and now in all the tendonopathy research and Jill Cook's good for that it, you know pain during loading is is okay and in fact somewhat wanted That was a great yeah, one.
2: absolutely and I think it's the concept of what is pain-free is the general Understanding that like when we do exercise, we should be pain free makes sense, right? we shouldn't be doing exercise and getting a really high pain response. It's probably not not what we're after. But the thing is, if we if we're saying hard and fast, pain-free means zero out of ten on a numeric rating scale. And that's what we wanted to look at. Was if, if we actually employ that as a rule hard and fast, compared to just allowing a low level, we weren't saying you can have eight out of ten pain. We you know, said, for them, if they were above a above a four, we were pulling the reins on them. So it's not to say that we just open the floodgates and let them do anything, but being a little bit more flexible and more importantly, educating patients or clients on what we mean when we ask them about pain as well. Because I think it's important with say a hamstring strain injury, when we talk about pain during an exercise and we ask, is it you know, is that making your pain worse or do you have pain when you do that? We're talking about pain specific to the site of injury not general muscle soreness, not sort of a stretching feeling in the muscle if it's like an eccentric contraction, but we're talking about that feeling of pain localised at that side of injury. So being really clear on that I think helped give the the participants confidence in, in what we were talking about when we talked about pain and that doesn't just go for an acute muscle injury, it's for you working with shoulders. It's, you know, often pain is a lot more general and it's not as focal as it might be in a hamstring injury it might be a more diffuse region of pain and so the explanation might be slightly different but the understanding that some level of pain is okay is it's a pretty well accepted phenomenon we certainly don't claim that what we've done here is you know completely novel because the pain threshold approach to rehab in the literature has been around for well over 20 years. I mean, the stuff in patellofemoral joint pain from like Roald Tommy back in 1997, I think it is, that was sort of the first clear sort of study in the literature where they looked at that. And then that, you know, flowed on to Achilles tendinopathy with Karen Silbernagel in the early 2000s. And you mentioned Jill Cook and and Ebony Rio and their research. And um, EBS was a um, a supervisor of mine throughout my my PhD and, um, you know, was really influential in, you know, helping us, Design this study in terms of talking about what pain is and educating patients on pain. So, yeah, we really just took what people have done before and looked to apply apply it to um, to hamstring strain injury or acute muscle injury. Yeah
1: it, was, yeah, it was it was excellently done. So, did you? So, how did you package it in terms of education to people who, for the cohort who had the pain threshold uh, rehab? Did you have a sort of certain education? around pain and hurt equals doesn't always equal harm and all these sorts of things or was it individualized or how did you go around that yeah look it was um
2: we wanted to be consistent because we wanted the the message to be consistent for for all participants so um clearly each individual it will interpret it differently as well and um, totally acknowledge that but basically what happened is after their initial confirmation of hamstring strain injury and You know, if they then said, after they've come in for that initial assessment, they're like, yeah, look, I'd love to come in and and do some rehab with you guys. And the benefit of it being a study was it was, you know, free of charge for them. So they were like, all right, cool. We'll come in a couple of times a week and do my rehab with you guys. When they were were happy to to do so, they got randomised to to one of the two groups. And so I would then sit down with them and we'd go through. They'd either be allocated to the pain-free or pain threshold. And basically, they'd be shown a pain scale. And so if you're in the pain-free group, you've got shown that pain scale. And we basically said, look, explain the two anchor points exactly the same to both groups, that zero is absolutely no pain, 10 is the worst you can imagine. But when we're doing our rehab, what we want you to do is we only want you to continue exercise if you're right down at the zero end of the scale in the pain-free group. Because we think that if you're somewhere on that scale, you know, the, we didn't necessarily, we didn't want to put fear into them. We just said, look, that's that's what's recommended is that we remain pain free during exercise. So therefore we want to keep you down at that level. If you report, you know, anything on that scale, we're just going to make the exercise a bit easier or, or regress it slightly. Whereas in the pain threshold group, we show them that same scale and say, look, we're actually happy for you to keep exercising up until four out of ten pain. So anywhere on a, you know, from zero, one, two, or three, four, we're okay with that. Didn't mean that they have to hit four every time. It just meant that if when I asked them when they were doing a double leg bridge, how are you feeling there? Yeah, not too bad. Like a two out of 10. Yeah, that's cool. Keep keep rolling on through. And the other important caveat was they had to also feel comfortable continuing. So if they said two out of 10, but I don't want to keep going, well, they can stop. That's that's on them. But it was educating them that we think that's actually okay. And so what I found quite interesting is a clinician is working with these, uh, these guys in both the pain-free and the pain threshold group. After a certain amount of rehab sessions, they probably had a bit of a learning effect where if they were someone who wanted to push themselves and be more aggressive, even if they were in the pain-free group, they quickly learned that, well, if I say zero out of 10, I'm going to be able to keep doing this exercise or potentially progress if I do it well enough. In the pain threshold group, by the same token, if someone was a bit more conservative, all of a sudden the magic number for them is five because they know when they say five, I'm like, okay, we've got to pull you back a little bit. So it's not a perfect system, um, but I think – it's certainly in the pain threshold, group. we didn't have many cases of that where it appeared that guys were, you know, wanting to stop. They were, they were pretty willing to push. And, you know, I found even in the pain-free group, most guys were, were pretty keen to, to push through and a little bit of discomfort often wasn't, they didn't see it as a barrier. So my general advice to people, particularly with hamstring strain injuries, if someone feels, if a patient feels comfortable to continue with the exercise, then it's probably totally fine. Regardless of what number they call on a pain scale, if you say to them do you feel comfortable continuing we're, we're probably pretty good with that because especially with gym-based exercise it's generally fairly slow and controlled. especially in early stages of rehab too so if something doesn't start to feel right on rep number six we can we can intervene maybe a little bit different we say we might need to be slightly more conservative when we get up to like high speed running and that sort of thing where it's a little bit more of a less controlled environment and team training and that type of thing but by that point hopefully Pain during exercise is, is less common because we're sort of moving into probably the, the second week of rehab when we're getting or, or beyond into that more high speed running exposure and that sort of thing.
1: Mm, that's a great point. It's probably, it also probably highlights the difference between an, a, an acute muscle injury versus a, a chronic or persistent vague musculoskeletal pain where they're the ones who often report sort of potentially their report of pain is not related to the, to the peripheral tissue versus in the acute. It's more like, okay, if it hurts a little bit, that's fine. But then they're, they're more likely to actually speak to that accurately versus in the population that I see usually with, with typically chronic shoulder pain, it's more any pain that has to be avoided and they're hypervigilant and they're really fearful. And so we more have to go down the, the pathway of, well, it's okay to have a little bit of pain, so on and so forth. So I think that kind of highlights the difference between sort of an acute musculoskeletal injury, especially in young athletic males, by the sounds of it, versus a different population. So I think that's important sure. to, to consider as well. Yeah,
2: absolutely, and it's it certainly I believe there would be be some some real differences there. But it, by the same token, it would be interesting to know. The correlation between actual tissue damage and the amount of pain reported in, in an acute in, injury cohort as well. So, if we did have access to MRI, you know, is there a relationship there? The interesting thing for us is the amount of pain reported during clinical tests certainly didn't correlate with their progression through rehab. So, that was probably for me, the, independent of the actual findings of the RCT, we've got some data that shows that there's a real lack of relationship between not only pain but also deficits observed on range of motion and strength testing and someone's ability to perform gym-based exercise or you know things like eccentric Mm. stimulus or even running progressions that's really important because it says that those progression criteria of being pain-free or relatively symmetrical on a clinical measure before moving to the next exercise they're really not related and so we need that more individualized approach so mm. data that we're working on um, and has been for a long time trying to, to get it published. It's hard data to get published because it's sort of um, it's observational data that, that we found throughout a randomized control trial so sort of fitting it to a typical study design approach and writing it up for a journal is a challenge but it's something we're working through and it's data we've presented and talked about at conferences and things like that and it's people have had interest in it so we were really trying to, to get it out there.
1: So if I could just clarify, so you're saying what you found observationally was that pain and strength and function weren't correlated, meaning you could have sort of higher subjective reports of pain, but also pretty good strength and, and vice versa as well.
2: Yeah, so that is one thing. You certainly, if we just look specifically within clinical assessments, you know, you'd have some guys reporting high levels of pain, but their between limb asymmetry and say isometric strength, objectively measured, um, you know, might have been well within ten percent. Or they might have reported no pain but had big deficits. But to me, that's actually real, makes kind of sense in a way because if, if we both, again, we take the case that we've both got a grade 2 hamstring strain and we present on day 3 post-injury and we do a 90-90 knee flexor uh, squeeze and let's say you give it a real crack because you're a bit less fearful of pain, for example, and you have a real crack and you actually get the same strength score on both legs but you report a 7 out of 10 pain because you had a real crack at it so, you, you know, you, you gave a bit of a nudge. Whereas I'm conservative and so I hold back. Therefore, I've got like a 50% strength deficit, but I didn't push to the level that would elicit any pain. So there is a bit of a lack of relationship there, potentially, or an inverse relationship in, in some senses. But more to the point, it was more that when we go back and look at this data, we can see guys who were able to do what are typically thought to be end stage exercises, such as single leg loaded back extensions with you know 10-15 kilo plate or naughty hamstring exercises through nearly full range, being able to do those sorts of exercises in their first couple of rehab sessions, maybe well within their first week of rehab, which in typical protocols are recommended to not be introduced either based on time, like as in towards the second or third week of rehab, or if based on criteria, the criteria is typically being pain-free and relatively symmetrical on clinical testing, like like ROM testing. What we found is because we progressed each exercise individually, regardless of their clinical profile, we go back and look at their clinical profile. A lot of these guys still had big between limb deficits on strength and they were still reporting high levels of pain, sometimes like six, seven out of 10 and deficits on an isometric squeeze test. Yet when they came into the gym, they were able to do a bilateral slider. They progressed to a Nordic and they could do, you know, six reps of a Nordic with absolutely no pain or maybe one or two out of ten pain, but do it even with relative between-limb symmetry when we measured them, say, using the Nord Board, for example. So mm. there's a lack of specificity with our clinical tests in terms of how much they tell us about what we can do in rehab. And For me, that's the most important clinical message because if I'm a practitioner holding someone back because they haven't achieved symmetry or they're not pain-free on a clinical test, and I'm not exposing them to say an eccentric stimulus because of that, I'm potentially underloading that person. Whereas they could be doing that loading much earlier, getting the stimulus required for adaptation, which we know by introducing them earlier, we actually do get changes. So we we saw in this cohort, regardless of group allocation, we saw increases in fascicle length, we saw increases in strength, and we saw relative maintenance of that, those changes couple of months after rehab as well so we know we can actually get change if we implement this approach it's not to say that it's a perfect approach but there's the potential that we might be underloading people if we implement criteria that aren't related to the task that we're saying they might
1: they they might yeah. be doing i got you so there was there wasn't a an isomorphic or one-to-one relationship between your clinical testing versus what they could tolerate in a rehabilitation setting absolutely so that's so if I if I relate that to the shoulder, which is what it always gonna do, yeah, it's sure. me saying you can't do a bench press until you've got a negative Portland Kennedy test. Correct. Which is nonsense. It's just not it's not it's not yeah it doesn't even and make when, any sense when you think about it.
2: And when you boil it down, you go, again, I don't think this is it's not a novel approach. People are probably already doing this. When they prescribe their exercises, they don't actually go and look at their clinical tests and then do it. That's not really what we're saying. But what we're saying is that if you look at particularly hamstring injury rehab protocols published in the literature, that is that is what they say. They say, don't do these exercises until you've met this criteria. So that's why we're keen to get this data out there. Even though we know that practitioners are probably already doing a lot of this stuff, we need to confirm that it is actually safe and that, as you mentioned, you know, just because someone has an internal rotation deficit doesn't mean they can't jump on a bench press and punch out a 75 kilo bench with no pain, no problems. They might have, you know, a lot of weakness when you do a resisted external rotation strength test. Doesn't mean that they can't do, you know, some sort of overhead throwing movement. They might be able to. So I, I like to think what we do it's it's not <laughs> it's not that groundbreaking. It's actually just common sense. If you want to know if someone can do something, well, firstly give them a slightly uh, you know, less intense version of that and gradually progress them up rather than trying to come up with a kind of like a miracle test that's going to tell you, you know, crystal ball, all right, next session, you're going to be able to do this because at the end of the day, well, I can save you a lot of time and not even bother doing that. So let's get in the gym and let's see if you can do it with two legs first. Can you do that? Yep, yeah, cool. Any pain? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, but well, that's not too bad. Have a go with one leg. Is it okay? Actually a bit too much pain? Cool, we'll regress it. Quick, simple. That's, yeah. what, that's what we want to go with.
1: But then you're taking away the uh, the guruism, and I know these special tests, and I know this cluster of tests, and it has a likelihood ratio of blah 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 yeah. blah, blah, blah. If all three are positive, you know. So, and and uh, to be honest, clinicians and I can speak for physios here. We are we are drawn to that. If I have three tests which gives me a sensitivity and specificity of this, then I know with certainty, which fits into my worldview and doesn't challenge me too much, that this person shouldn't be doing this activity or this person has this particular pathoanatomical diagnosis, which we, yeah. which we won't get into. But in the same with patients and, and people with pain though, they want, they want, it, want, it needs to make sense and be coherent mm. to them as well. Right? So they're like, well, this video did a restricted knee flexor test on me and it hurt my hamstring. And, I'm not okay to run until that is negative. And that, that makes sense. It's cause and yeah. effect, right? But yeah. pain is not cause and effect.
2: And I think that's an important point because it's not to say that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater as well. Um, I'm a big believer in doing a good, thorough clinical assessment, but it's understanding why you're doing it that's important. So, the reason for me as, a, as an exercise physiologist, why I would do a clinical assessment on someone is to identify what are their clinical deficits in a you know an objective measure of strength range of motion or function or or otherwise what are their deficits because sometimes those are actually well correlated with things like the time that it's going to take them to get back to sport or maybe it's going to be related to their longer term functional outcomes if it's we're talking about something like knee osteoarthritis or you know other populations so there's still a time and a place and a purpose for doing these tests where i don't think it's very relevant is to tell you that same day, what are they going to be able to do on the gym floor? And there might be cases where it is more related, but as a general rule, if I want to know that, I'm going to get them on the gym floor and do something lower level and then progress them. So it's important to know that we're not trying to say you shouldn't do a clinical assessment because there's some great work out there, such as Rod Whiteley's work from, from Aspatar, where you know he's shown some some nice relationships between particularly deficits in, in out-of-range strength and pain with palpation. and being able to give a prognosis for return to play and we know how important that is for particularly hamstring strain injury in a, you know which can be one to two weeks or it can be six to eight weeks giving a relatively informed prognosis but as rod would fairly admit like that's also not perfect you know there's going to be outliers within that data as well so it's about understanding why we're doing those tests and, and just clarifying that mm. and some of those tests are also used as criteria to return to sport so once someone is pain free on an isometric um, and has an equal range of motion and no pain with palpation, you know there are often guidelines that are used to say, okay, we're ready to return to full team training. For example, mm-hmm. wrongly that that's what is out there at the moment. So um,
1: yeah, so I think use your clinical testing, you know, to be a good clinician, rule out sinister pathology, confirm your diagnosis, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and you can get a good overview with how that tissue tolerates load, for example. But then don't. Have that completely inform your exercise prescription. You know, use some other variables in there as well.
2: Yeah, and again, it's not in absolutes. It probably informs to an extent, but the point Mm -hmm. we're trying to make is that if you're employing that as an absolute rule, you cannot do this exercise until you've passed this criteria. Well, that's a bit of a fallible approach. Just like doing, you know, the exercise-specific approach that we employed. Just because you can do 10 reps of a double leg bridge, it doesn't mean the same session you're going to be able to do a single leg bridge. It just means that you can do a double leg so we can now start progressing you towards a single leg bridge fairly safely. It's not perfect. It doesn't doesn't predict and it doesn't tell us. And this sort of obsession that's with prediction and being able to say you did this today so you're going to do this tomorrow, like we all just need to chill out a little bit I think and just realise that we don't have to have all the answers, just have a system in place that right. If this happens, you can try this, and if that is okay, keep pushing up until a certain point where we want you to then bring it back and find that mm. place. That's what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to say that I'm going to know in two weeks' time, Jared, exactly what you're going to be doing in your rehab sessions. I've got no idea. I might have a, a good guess at it out of experience, but you know, I'm probably going to be wrong. You know, fifty mm. times. So I'm just going to give you some guidelines to say, look, over the next week. Because in private practice, especially, we might see someone on a Monday morning after they pop their hammy on the weekend. We might not see them again until the following Monday. So, rather than just give them a set of exercises to do for that week, which doesn't allow for progression regression, what we need to be better at, in my opinion, with as prescribing exercise, is prescribing the rules for progression regression. So, saying, all right, Joe, I'm going to give you these three exercises to start with. We'll have a crack at them here in the clinic and make sure you can do do them okay, and then we can maybe individualize a bit more but then you're going to feel different tomorrow you're going to feel different again on thursday and different again next saturday so when you do each exercise if you can do the prescribed rep range and it feels relatively easy and you've got a low level of pain or less then i'm happy for you to progress that and start trying a single leg version or i'm happy for you to start adding low. Just like you'd do if you were prescribing a general program for a 16 year old who wants to put on a bit of muscle, doesn't have any injury. You're just saying, right, you know, you're going to start with this, you're going to gradually progress, but if it starts to hurt too much or your form, you know, isn't that good, then we're going to bring you back. So I think what we need to do as exercise professionals and exercise prescribing exercise as an intervention is not just prescribe the intervention, but tell someone how they progress and progress. Because for me, that's the missing
1: ingredient a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%, mate. That's yeah, we want that's, that's such a that's such a good point. Um, to, to keep it moving along, how about so what happened with uh, so return to play was the same in terms of time was the same between both groups. What about re-injury rates? Yeah, so it's
2: important to note, and as well with the return to play, it, it was time to return to play clearance that we used as our measure rather than actual return to sport because we know there's a lot of confounding factors there in terms of different sports and <coughs> excuse me, different levels of sport. <coughs> I've been talking too much and all that sort of thing. But yeah, in terms of meeting those criteria for return to play clearance, there was no difference between the two groups, which tells us that okay, pain threshold doesn't accelerate that that time. Yeah. What it does mean is that it didn't didn't derail things at all. It was no different, and more importantly, within the same time frames, we saw some greater improvements in strength and also uh, muscle fascicle length, which means that. It didn't take longer, it just took the same amount of time, but with maybe a bit more exposure or earlier exposure, we saw some, some greater improvements in, in function or, or muscle structure is in the case as well. As far as reinjury goes, we need to be a little bit careful interpreting the findings there because we did follow them up for, for a six-month period afterwards. The difficulty with any study where you're looking at re-injury, particularly like the hamstring injury study. Need really big numbers. And so, as I mentioned, we had 43 participants, which in a couple of years, as part of the PhD project, I was stoked with. But in the big scheme of things, it's nowhere near enough to know anything about re injury risk. Um, the good thing is, there was no difference between the two groups, and we had a, an overall relatively low uh, re injury rate. So, we had two guys in the pain free group, as well as two guys in the pain threshold group that, that suffered re injuries. So you can't say that there's any difference there. Obviously, it's the same amount, but to statistically analyze it, you need much bigger, much bigger numbers to really know. What was most interesting with the re-injury data was that three of the, if you just pull all the four re-injuries together, three of those four reinjuries in this cohort uh, occurred in guys that returned to sport. Oh, uh, sorry, w- re- occurred within two weeks of return to sport. So that relatively uh, quick time frame for, for return to sport. Uh, you know might enhance your, your risk of injury so mm. it tells us as well that our criteria for return to play clearance certainly isn't perfect obviously we didn't use things like imaging there's been some recent work again out of Aspitar that shows that from a hamstring injury you don't need to have complete resolution of signs of injury on MRI to make a full return to sport so how do we know when you should and when you shouldn't it's a really challenging probably the most challenging decision with, with ham injury rehab so uh, yeah for, for those major outcomes of return to play and re-injury no difference between the two there was not uh, the only subtle difference that we observed was that uh, strength at return to play clearance was greater or the improvement was greater in the pain threshold group within the same time frame and a two-month follow-up when we looked at fascicle length the improvements achieved throughout rehab were better maintained in the pain threshold group than the pain free mm-hmm. um, so there are only subtle subtle differences and yeah. certainly pain-free group still made significant improvements in strength and muscle architecture. So if you're a bit more conservative and you'd rather remain pain-free, that's probably okay, but we know that it is safe to allow low levels of pain and, more importantly, that in both groups we saw improvements in those strength and architectural variables by prescribing exercise the way we did as a relatively individualised approach. For me, that's what's the most
1: important finding, I think. And it's interesting, so better strength perhaps in the pain threshold group trend towards better muscle architecture, but still same sort of injury rate as well, even though, again, you mentioned the limitations with the analysis of that statistically. So, But that, that's yeah. another interesting point and something mm. that I'm looking at a little bit in my PhD. not can't, can't reveal too much about it at the moment, but looking at the relationship between strength and whether that predicts the onset of pain or injury, and it's a tenuous link, if I'm honest. Yeah. That's another rabbit hole we can go down, but it, it sort of speaks to that a little bit as well, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and the someone's profile at return to play is often not very indicative of whether they'll get re-injured or not. It's probably got much more to do with their exposure to high-speed running, you know, even during rehab, but also afterwards, their continuation with, um, you know, preventative stimulus as well, that sort of thing. So, and I think, again, it's Rod Wiley, he sort of talks about, like, the stronger athletes are often the ones that go on and get re-injured. So, in terms of absolute strength, and isn't that just because they're exposing their previously injured muscle to high levels of force. You know, I I touched on earlier when we were chatting, you know, I was never quick enough to tear a hammy. I probably was never strong enough either. So I probably wasn't putting enough forces through my hamstrings to to elicit a hamstring injury. So certain individuals are just more prone um, prone to injury. So it's a real challenge. And again, it's trying to come up with that magic test that tells us you will or won't get re-injured is probably a very limited approach and it's such a multifactorial injury that if we're only looking at strength or only look at architecture or we're only looking at high speed running where we're not considering how all those pieces of the puzzle might fit together um and a lot of the time just general yeah good progressive overload and you know return to training programs and once someone's back in the team environment, making sure their exposure to training is graduated, and things like that, is probably more important than what they actually did in rehab anyway. So,
1: yeah, and just so so injury is a injury is a, a non linear. Dynamic event, right? And it's when we say injury, and in this case, it's probably really relevant for your paper because there was no <coughs> pathoanatomical confirmation via an MRI. So perhaps there was a perception of pain in the area without any corresponding actual yeah. tissue trauma. Pain, pain is pain is not just related to tissue damage; it's the, it's the potential of tissue damage as well so yeah so that's that's another a really fascinating point so so injury or pain can come on via a number of different factors it can be related to their sleep hygiene to are they having any psychosocial stress outside of the team environment is there pressures around contracts or are they fatigued all these sorts of things right so it's the re-injury thing is really hard to to investigate or examine too deeply because it's so Mm. multifactorial
2: yeah and and at what point in time? with a hamstring injury as an example is a re-injury a recurrence of that original injury or is it a new injury and challenge with that is we know that you know the hamstrings take a long time to actually structurally remodel after an injury a long time after people generally go back to sport and we probably suspect that that's why we see those high rates of re-injury within generally the first two weeks to two months following hamstring strain um and there's a good argument to say that we just don't haven't allowed enough time for it to actually heal but the problem is if we then hold everyone up for an extra two months in rehab what happens to all the guys who were able to successfully go back to sport so where do you draw the line it's a it's a tough one it's like the argument with acl rehab and saying you know you have to have a minimum nine months or 12 months or whatever you know what if i am the athlete who is fine at nine months or six months you know i'm going to be pretty pissed off if you hold me back but i actually could have gone to the olympics in six months time so it's such an individual thing it's it's really challenging yeah. the argument of whether a hamstring strain injury is in fact an acute injury or is it a chronic accumulation of damage like and it's just the straw that broke the camel's back rather than one acute event you know there's a, an interesting discussion point there as well so the concept of acute versus chronic sports injury or musculoskeletal injury in general is is quite interesting i think and you know we mentioned we mentioned the shoulder obviously is generally speaking being thought of as a more chronic injury but of course you can still get an acute presentation of shoulder injury as well and same with a hamstring injury you can have sort of more of a chronic onset of of pain and that sort of thing so what do we do with those individuals it's Mm -hmm. um yeah it's a bit of a Pandora's box once you're stuck into that level, I think.
1: Yeah, because because we're talking about pain, and it's always going to be a Pandora's box because it, then you leave it open to individual beliefs and societal beliefs and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think how you did it was 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 excellent in that you kind of focused on what you could control, and then had the two different groups pain threshold, whatever that means for because they each I don't know how many there was twenty two or twenty one in that group, but that person would have had an individual belief on what pain is and they may have felt pain differently as well. Mm. But you, you take it as a whole and you can say, on average, pain threshold, rehabilitation in that group certainly wasn't damaging to their recovery yeah. and perhaps was, was beneficial. And I think that's the yeah. key point.
2: I think probably one thing that I didn't I should have touched on before when talking about the setup of this study as well is the when they were allocated to their, to their groups, um both groups at that time and also throughout the whole duration of the study were unaware that there was another group so Mm -hmm. they just got told that all right you're in you know you're doing pain threshold rehab it wasn't like you are you know now allocated to this group they basically just got handed an envelope that they opened in that envelope contained information about rehab Mm -hmm. and so that information was either about pain free or pain threshold limits and so i think the strength there is that there was some some blinding of the participants to an extent because they they were blinded to the i guess chances of another intervention so if you were in a pain group but you knew that you know as the other guy is getting pain threshold rehab that comes in on a wednesday you might start to think well i want to do that i want to push harder whereas they're thinking that they're both thinking that they're getting what is best practice effectively so there's a buy-in and there's a belief in, effectively we didn't know what was best practice. And technically speaking, we still don't really. Um, but it's getting that buy-in from someone to say, that, uh, well, yeah, this is why I'm doing it and I'm agreeing to it. So therefore, um, mm. yeah, we're on the same page. And then there's, there's some grey within that, as I mentioned before, where guys might, they just change what... For them, what a one out of 10 means is different to what a five out of 10 means for someone in the pain threshold group because those barriers are mm. slightly shifted.
1: Yeah, the, the best practice thing is funny, isn't it? Because still both groups did exactly the same in essence. So there's yeah. still probably no best, there's still two ways of looking at the best practice guideline. It's the same, it's the same in the shoulder. Not one way of exercising or rehabbing a shoulder is not superior to another. We know that. We know yeah. isometric, eccentric, concentric, isotonic. With closed kinetic chain, open kinetic chain, all has the exact same outcome. So perhaps it's just getting that person moving, um, mm. putting a little bit of load through their system as they allow. Because even though it's four out of pen pain threshold, it's still tolerable. You know? It's yeah. still that person feels comfortable. They don't feel yeah. threatened by it, not overloading their system. So it's still, it's kind of a variation of a, a similar, it's just irritability of the symptoms, right? You don't ever sure. say, don't do something you don't want to do.
2: Yeah. And I mean, that number said, came out of, it was largely from the the pain monitoring model as you mentioned our uh, roll Tommy before, like that original model of sort of zero to two being being completely fine and then two to five being sort of safe, but just be a bit wary. And then above that we want to stop that. We considered employing that same model and then we just thought, well, we're just gonna adapt it slightly. And to be honest, it's a very arbitrary decision. We said, well, rather than five, let's go slightly more conservative and just knock it down to a four. But mm. probably wouldn't have made any difference if we said five or four, to be honest. Mm. Um, I mean, technically speaking, it's actually the same rule because we when they hit four, they were still able to exercise at four. So really five was the limit. if you're looking at it in, in that respect. The problem is what if someone says four point five because guys will do that or you know <laughs> they play around within those scales too. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 interesting, and I think you know, you can worry too much about the arbitrary number aspect. I think, as you mentioned, it's if they feel comfortable to continue. And their description of the pain is like, yeah, look, it's a bit uncomfortable, but I'm I'm happy to continue. I'm absolutely confident that, that person is going to be okay. Whereas if one says, oh, it's a one out of 10, but it's quite sharp and I'm really just, oh, it doesn't feel good. I'm going to pull that, Even though they say one out of 10, you know, that's their understanding of a pain scale, but what they're describing to me doesn't sound, they don't sound confident to continue. And me pushing them is probably going to lead to a bit of a negative response from them. So it's got to be quite individualized, I think, in terms of your approach. Um, yeah, everyone and particularly those with a previous injury versus those of first timers potentially might respond differently as well in terms of how tolerable they are or how full cool they are of pain, but depending on what they've previously been told as well. So that's a big thing is they've, they've seen someone else previously who's either really pushed them into pain or they've said, no, you've got to completely avoid it, pain is bad, it's gonna cause damage. So their own beliefs and past experiences are going to inform what, what
1: happens. Yeah, 100%. It's just hard to capture that in an average population, isn't it? But I, I think I, I, the key take-home for me from your paper is that the absence of pain during rehabilitation is not required. So I think, to be honest, that that, that should inform or actually be applicable to every clinician who is watching this in their practice the next day. And I think you can extrapolate it to other musculoskeletal injuries as well. I don't think it just has to be related to the hamstring. Pain is pain in an individual, irrespective of where it comes from. Do you agree with that? Yeah,
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think if you you had to just put one line on it and sum it up, which it's a somewhat deflating experience, mate, when you you do – x amount of years of work and it comes down to one line but effectively that's what it is it's like what we've been able to show apart from anything else is that it's okay to allow low levels of pain during acute muscle injury or hamstring strain injury rehab you know you don't have to have complete absence of pain yeah that, that is what you know it's it's no more complicated it's no more exciting than that whether you think that's interesting or not is then up, up to you um and you kind of just have to as the person who's done the studies you put your ego to the side and say yeah Hopefully that's contributed wow. to him. and if it has I think
1: that's, I think that's actually really good I think it was I don't know if it was Einstein or, or Feynman or something who said that if you have a if you have a formula you should be able to write it on your shirt so well, I think you're going we're, studying, mate, we're going, going too far out of the if, we're being,
2: if I'm being compared to Einstein now you're trying to put me in rocket <laughs> definitely
1: is, a lot of yeah. grief yeah. over that if that's the case No, I think I think you I think done well it was, a, it was a really terrific paper um Thanks, thanks very much for, for coming on and having a chat. I think, no, my uh, pleasure, mate. People get a lot out of it. So, I've got honestly got heaps more questions, but I'm conscious of time, so I'll, I'll let you go and maybe we can speak again in the future. Have you got more plans for any more experiments coming up or any publications we should be aware of?
2: Yeah, I mean, like I mentioned before, there's probably at the moment, due to the COVID restrictions, it's a front training time because we, we can't really do a lot in the lab and we can't be recruiting participants. In, doing face-to-face stuff which is uh it's frustrating since what we love doing is, is research scientists. so it's, it's yeah it, it is what it is but at the same time very fortunate to still be in a job and, and being able to do what we do more so from a teaching perspective at the moment so that's sort of the focus right now um but the the other benefit is it gives us some time to work on those things i alluded to before where we've still got data that was you know collected quite a long time ago now that we're still trying to push out for publication and now that the rct is out there and Um, has some recognition i think that makes it a little bit easier to hopefully publish some of that work and a lot of people out there who've who've followed our group uh our group's work or maybe seen us present at conferences are are probably well aware of some of the findings that that we're trying to get published at the moment too because we have discussed those observational findings uh previously and i've discussed them here too but to get them out in in print in the literature is is really what we're striving for at the moment so uh definitely a challenge uh, and i'm sure you know, you'll, you'll go through similar things we your PhD yourself, but it's all part of the process. And, you know, once we get, get that and once we then hopefully can start collecting data again, you know, we've, we've got ongoing projects, you know, some small lab-based pieces of work, but then also for um, myself wanting to, to do some more rehab work and particularly delve a little bit more into the, the high-speed running side of things and how we can maybe be best implement that in, in rehab and, yeah, sort of what's the, I guess, my overarching theme with particularly any kind of rehab, but, but hammy rehab, is, is not overcomplicating it. And how can we simplify things as best possible to get good outcomes for, for a clinician in practice? And hopefully, our RCT has gone some way to, to doing that. But there's certainly a lot more work that needs to be done to, to, to optimize, for one of a, a better term, um, what we do in rehab. So that's the, the long-term aim, mate. But in the uh, in the meantime, we'll just we'll get through isolation. And, uh, yeah, try not to go to too, too insane inside.
1: Yeah, uh, thoughts are with you guys. South of the border, uh, down in Victoria, going through a tough time. Don't, don't come to Queensland, whatever you do. There's, uh, uh, there's police everywhere.
2: <laughs> I've been warned off, mate. We'll, we'll stay away at the moment. So we'll be yeah. uh, outside. So we'll be lots of uh, new hobbies and stuff that will be taken up. But, uh, nah, a lot more people in worse situations than us, mates. So we'll be right.
1: Are you on uh, social media or anything? Where can people find? Talk
2: about you. Mate. Uh, I am. I'm not a very active. I probably more use, use Twitter when we you not know, have new research to, to obviously just people aware of that and um, more than happy to engage in conversation with people though through social media. So I think my Twitter handle, uh, if I bring it up, I think it's just my name, so Jack89. Yeah, using using the Twitter handle. Um, some people, I don't know, use Instagram quite a lot. I don't use it for any sort of work-related stuff unless you want to see photos of me and the missus on a holiday. It's probably not that does, to be honest. So, yeah, look, Twitter's probably where I'd, you know, keep things a bit more academic um, and it's a good place just to touch base and if people want to ever have a chat or have some questions related to our research, I'm always more than happy to chat. I find that it helps drive good conversation and it helps us as researchers even even with a clinical background, stay in touch with what people are doing day to day. Because although I still consult a little bit, it's you know a very limited amount of time. So you feel like you do lose touch a bit with what's happening. So I, I love having those discussions with people. So um, yeah, more than happy for people to reach out and, and have a chat. Awesome. All right, mate.
1: We'll uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much, and stay safe
2: down there. All right. Do man. Thanks, Jared. Enjoy the sunshine. Thanks. Bud.
1: See
0: ya. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Shoulder Physio Podcast with Jack Hickey. In the time that has elapsed since July 2020, when we recorded this conversation, the content discussed is still accurate and up to date. If you want more information about today's episode, check out our show notes at www.shoulderphysio.com. If you liked what you heard today, don't forget to follow and subscribe on your podcast player of choice and leave a rating or review. It really helps the show reach more people. Thanks for listening. I'll chat to you soon. The Shoulder Physio Podcast would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded from the lands of the Ugamba people. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands on which each of you are living, learning and working from every day. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia.